Are Democratic voters in the 2020 presidential race trying to choose between excitement and risk? We'll explain. We'll go behind the scenes in D.C. at the impeachment hearings. Are they going to change anyone's mind? And what are the party's plans for trying to do so? We'll get the latest analysis. And this week's big number is 72%. We'll tell you what that means as we go on the trail with the Bernie Sanders campaign. This is Where Did You Get This Number? I am Anthony Salvanto, and we'll bring you all that and more in a second. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. It's very encouraging, and uh, at the same time, there's a long way to go. And there are a lot of states in this process, so uh, I, I recognize the work that we've got to do. Real change, real change never, ever comes from the top on down. It always comes when millions of people at the grassroots level stand up and fight for justice. It is critical that everyone in this country be held to the same standard, and that is no one is above the law, not even the President of the United States. So I believe it is appropriate for this uh, impeachment inquiry to go forward. I think it's going to nominate someone who wouldn't beat Trump. Is a nation and a world that our children and grandkids won't want to won't want to live in. I can beat Trump. First, here's your top line, the latest from CBS News polling. In the Democratic nomination race, we see more jockeying back and forth between Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden. Biden now atop the race across the early states. He is at 29 percent, Warren at 26 percent. Now, Warren had led last month. Biden is described by these Democratic voters as safe in a way that they do not describe Warren or the other candidates. On the other hand, Warren is described as exciting in a way that Joe Biden's numbers just don't match. And now a third of Democratic voters say they describe Elizabeth Warren's policies as possibly too liberal to win a general election. That may be a sign that the latest round of critiques against her coming from the other campaigns may be having an impact. Now, Bernie Sanders holding strong. He's in third place. He's at 18 percent across those early contests. He's in the top tier in Iowa. And one of the things that struck me about his support is that he's got more strong supporters than the other top-tier candidates. We will talk about what that means for the Bernie Sanders campaign. We'll go on the trail with Cara Cordy, who has been covering it. But first, I want to go to D.C. We will get the latest analysis of the impeachment hearings from our correspondent, Stephen Portnoy. To start off, I want to bring in my colleague, CBS News White House correspondent, Stephen Portnoy. Stephen, you're down there. Let me let me ask you behind the scenes in your reporting, you're talking to Democrats. What is it that they feel have has been the most effective 
parts of these hearings in terms of trying to make their argument? What do they feel has been less effective? Well, Democrats are trying to make a, a legal case. We know that. But they're also trying to make an emotional appeal to those Americans who are not quite fully on board uh, with the idea that the president ought to be charged with high crimes and misdemeanors and tried in the Senate. And I think they hit their high watermark to date as we speak, Anthony, at the end of the week where Marie Ivanovich testified about the harm that she says has been done to Foreign Service officers generally and to her specifically. There was that powerful moment when the former ambassador to Ukraine stood up and walked out of the hearing room to a standing ovation. That is a rare thing indeed in Washington, and it had some people uh, thinking back to that era in the mid-1950s in the Red Scare when, uh, you know, in the Army McCarthy hearings, Senator McCarthy was put to shame. And, you know, here's a place where the polls might have not gotten this one quite perfectly because leading up to the hearings, a lot of Americans told us they weren't planning to watch or weren't planning to watch live anyway. And that moment that you described there does seem to have captured a lot of public response. It made it into a SNL skit. Uh, we know that there are millions of people have been have been watching. Now, behind the scenes, when you talk to Republicans, same question. What do they feel has been their most effective argument? And what are they doing behind the scenes to maybe shore up places that they don't feel have been as effective? Well, Republicans are also trying to make a legal argument. And their legal argument, flatly, is that the president did not commit a crime. Uh, You hear Democrats using the phrase bribery to describe this idea of withholding or threatening withhold military aid in exchange for a promise or a statement on the part of the Ukrainian leadership to investigate Burisma, the gas company that employed Joe Biden's son Hunter. Republicans say that, look, at the end of the day, the aid money actually did flow, that the president was convinced by Republicans and Democrats, perhaps, in Congress to allow that money to flow. The president, they say, was fully within his rights to sit on the money because he had to, under the statute, certify that Ukraine was not, in fact, engaged in corruption. They also say that this idea of bribery is sort of a misbegotten notion, a misunderstanding or a misreading of the term, uh, that essentially it meant that the president was not to be bribed, not that the president cannot bribe. And that was the founder's intent. And they ultimately believe that uh, at the end of the day, there's not going to be a a massive swell of support for impeachment, that it's too much to put the country through, especially when the voters will have the opportunity in less than a year to decide whether Donald Trump should serve another four-year term. One of the things you just said had an echo for me in a polling question that I found interesting, which was, is the president's are the president's actions something typical for presidents or something unusual for presidents? And beyond the usual partisan splits in that, you do find this overall divide where you've got a lot of folks who say, well, this is typical. This is something a president usually does. Past presidents have done. And then the others who say, no, no, this is unusual. This is not something a president typically does. And does it strike you that there is this back and forth in Washington over whether or not, as you pointed out, this is part of the way or there's a belief that this is just part of the way foreign policy often goes, you know, sort of horse trading, if you will. Well, the the diplomats and uh, bureaucrats who have testified and who will testify intend, I believe, to tell Congress that this is not the way that it's ever been in their careers. 
Uh, they uh, have noted that they, they were never told why the military aid appropriated by Congress would be withheld, especially after the bureaucrats at the Defense Department certified that, in fact, Ukraine uh, had not uh, been engaged in corruption uh, in May of 2019. This was after uh, the uh, president ordered the aid withheld or about the time that this was in question. Uh, after Zelensky took office, you had wide-scale confusion within the national security apparatus as to what exactly was happening and why. And that's what lends itself to questions as to what the president's true motivation was. Now, the president has offered his own evidence, which he believes is exculpatory, and that is the call summary of his July 25th call with Volodymyr Zelensky, in which he mentions the need to investigate CrowdStrike and it seems, the Bidens. He refers to the ambassador as bad news, the former ambassador. But at the same time, uh, he is president of the United States. And to make the the legal argument that Republicans are making, what the people who work for the president feel about this is utterly and certainly legally irrelevant. That Article 2 gives the president the responsibility to set American foreign policy and the statutes give him the authority to withhold aid if in this particular circumstance he believes Ukraine is corrupt. And that's exactly what he did do. And for whatever reason he did it, he had the right to do it. And that's the argument that Republicans are making, that the people who are talking at these hearings and testifying about how unusual, how inappropriate, how disconcerting it all was, well, that's their opinion. But the president ultimately has the power under the Constitution. The political as well as the legal and the constitutional. Stephen Portnoy, CBS News at the White House. Stephen, always great to catch up. And thanks again. I know how busy you are. So all of our listeners will continue to hear from you. um, And we appreciate it here. You bet, Anthony. Thanks. Thanks. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. One of the key findings across polling this cycle in the Democratic primary race is that Bernie Sanders' supporters, even if there's not as many of them as Joe Biden's or Elizabeth Warren's, are sticking with him. 72% of Sanders' backers across the early states say that they are strong supporters, compared to 55% for Biden's, 56% for Warren's. So what's behind that? And maybe more importantly, going forward, can the campaign grow beyond it? Last week, I talked to Kara Cordy, CBS News political reporter who's been on the trail with the Sanders campaign since the start. I am delighted to be joined by Kara Cordy. Kara has a great job. She's CBS News political reporter assigned to the Sanders campaign. And let me ask you about the idea that Bernie Sanders supporters 
are very committed to him. I see it in the polling because I see when we ask people, is your support strong or are you wavering? Bernie Sanders supporters relative to other candidates gets a lot of very strong supporters. People say they won't change their minds about it. How do you pick up on that strength, that fervency that he seems to generate among the people who've decided to to back him? I think when you think about Senator Sanders, it's very easy to see someone who you know, maybe would not win Miss Congeniality in a, in a beauty pageant. Some people think he's a curmudgeon. Some people think he, he is an introvert. And perhaps that's all true. But what I can tell you about the people who support him is that there is an emotional relationship between themselves and the senator and his campaign. They, they trust him. They see him as an OG who's been talking about these progressive ideas for <laughs> more than 30 years. What does OG stand for? And OG stands for original gangster. <laughs> <laughs> and and that is that is who he is uh, to many of his supporters. Carrie, you've been on this trail with Bernie Sanders for what, uh, six months, uh, six months or so? I think that sounds about right. Yeah, we started around April, May. That's right. When you look at the crowds, the kinds of people following the Sanders campaign or coming to Sanders events, what strikes you about them and how are they different from the people that you see at other candidates' rallies? Yeah, it's very interesting to see the eclectic mix of Sanders supporters. It's interesting that in 2016, there was this myth of the Bernie bro following the Sanders campaign, that it was kind of these millennial white men that were uh, making up the backbone of Sanders support. I got to say, I don't see that. I see people of all ages, all different kinds of colors. I was joking with a Bernie embed the other day. I said, you know what? I'm glad we're on this beat because there are so many young people around. It's really good to keep an eye on the fashion that's happening <laughs> <laughs> of the young people of America. <laughs> and I've learned, you know, Anthony, there's lots of um, rolling up of the jeans and, and high socks. And I, that's just one thing I've, I've noticed a lot of. The visual sock is a trend. I'm, I'm glad to know that. I may not be able to pull that <laughs> off myself, but it's, it's, good, it's good to know. What's, um, what's interesting about that is that, you know, we may here in New York have a certain style of dress, and it may be that it's a younger audience that's following the Sanders campaign or coming coming to the rallies. But among folks who are outside of that group, among the folks who are a little bit older, what is it that they're hearing about and what is it that they're listening for at these rallies that struck you where you've said, you know what, I, I don't think the people in D.C. get that, speaking of, of cities that may be a little bit insular. I don't know that the, that the people in the media and the New York really get that about them. Yeah, it's interesting because even though in polls will show you this as well, Sanders' weakest group, and, and the campaign will admit this, we hear Sanders say this sometime on the trail, he is weakest with older white voters. I think if you look at behind the scenes, the way the campaign is approaching this, there is not as much overlap between Senator Sanders and Senator Warren as you might think there is, just seeing that the two of them are labeled as progressives. I was talking this morning with a senior Sanders aide, and he said, we look at Joe Biden as the front runner. 
And we look at Joe Biden as someone who is going after working class voters. And in their eyes, he is kind of the big fish that they want to take down. They don't really focus on Elizabeth Warren. Now, that's at least what they tell me. But they tell me that Biden is the one that they think they can siphon support from, especially those working class union voters. They think that's the bread and butter of Sanders support. And, you know, what you said about the Sanders campaign going after the working class voters sort of leads me to this question. In 2016, Bernie Sanders was talking about economic inequality. He still is. He was talking about uh, what he considered, if I could paraphrase, or at least what voters were telling us, they felt was an unfair structural uh, economy, an economy that simply did not work for everyone. And yet, here we are in 2020 when a large majority of Americans say that the economy overall is good. Has there been anything that Senator Sanders has had to do to change his message in regards to that? Or is it that he is still speaking to a group of folks that still feels that way about the economy despite the fact that overall the polls show that the economy is is seen to be doing well? Yeah, you're so right, Anthony. And that's such an interesting paradox of Sanders' campaign. You know, we read these jobs reports that come out, right, with historically low unemployment levels. Sanders will address that head on. And he says on the trail that, you know, you can be in New York and, and, and Washington and say that the economy is doing well. But and, and this is him speaking to voters. He'll say, but you and I both know that for the working class who, you know, their wealth is not based in the stock market, they're still struggling. And he really drills down on the struggle of Americans. He will go to town halls and he will tell these folks, now, before you ask me a question, I want to ask you a question. Does anyone have a story to tell about medical debt? Does anyone have a story to talk about about the struggle of the working class or the middle class? And these events become these kind of group therapies and people unload these really emotional stories about how they're struggling to pay their bills or get a job because maybe they are a factory worker and their jobs were moved to North Carolina where it's a, a non-union state or, or, or Mexico. And of course, that just makes you think about President Trump and the kind of stories that he would tell on the trail and, and his supporters would tell on the trail. So here's something fun, Kara. Before we started taping, you told us that you had a number to bring us and tell us what it means. We love that. What, what is it? I'm actually going to bring you two numbers, Anthony. I oh, hope that's okay. the more the merrier. That's the point. <laughs> <laughs> but they're in the same category. And the first number is 10,000 and the second number is 2,000. And those Do numbers represent – Oh, would you um, like to? <laughs> let's see. 10,000. I'm going to guess. And to audience, I don't, I don't know this. 10,000 is going to be the number of people at a big Bernie Sanders rally? Yeah, that makes sense, right? And it's not, it wasn't okay. too mysterious. And 2,000 in as well. 2,000 oh, is as well. At a smaller Bernie Sanders rally. 10,000. Yes, yes. But I think significant okay. nonetheless. 10,000 is the number of people that Senator Sanders had a couple weeks ago in Minneapolis, Minnesota at a rally with Representative Ilhan Omar. Mm -hmm. And 2,000 is the, uh, around the number of people that he had at a rally in Oklahoma about seven weeks ago. 
And the reason why I bring those up is because those two states are Super Tuesday states. Mm -hmm. The Sanders campaign, I think, is focusing on Super Tuesday more narrowly than others are at this point. They have kind of had this pattern of campaigning. Well, they will do a cluster of events in one of the first in the nation states or the first four states. And then they'll kind of punctuate that swing with a stop in Minnesota or a stop in Oklahoma or a stop in California. They have staffs in almost all of the Super Tuesday states. And he's bringing out large numbers of people at these rallies in Super Tuesday states. They know, the Sanders campaign knows, that those first four states, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, are important. But as you know, Anthony, in California alone, there are more delegate there are more delegates than those first four states combined. And I think when we look at those high rally numbers in Super Tuesday states, it shows that Sanders' campaign is really playing a long game here. What's interesting about that, and you and I have talked about this before, just not long ago, which is that what carries over from a campaign that's run before, and in his case, what carries over from 2016. And the name recognition is already there. It's pretty clear from the polling he's on track to at least finish in the top tier in some of those early states, whether it's one, two, three, whichever, we don't know yet. But you're saying it effectively doesn't matter because he can take that and then parlay it into a broader campaign and amass delegates on Super Tuesday, whereas a lesser known candidate, a candidate that's trying to get more media recognition, has to go all in on Iowa and make the media play win there and then sort of prove their bona fides to the voters and prove that they can get the kind of attention that they then ladder into other states, right? Exactly, exactly. And think about how much money Senator Sanders has. You know, he led uh, fundraising in this past third quarter. His donors are small dollar donors. They're not maxing out. They can give again. There's no reason to believe that him pulling in $30 million in a quarter won't happen again. And when you look at these Super Tuesday states, they're a little more diverse than certainly Iowa, New Hampshire. Think about in South Carolina, where in 2016, he was walloped by Hillary Clinton. And now he's pretty consistently been polling a competitive second or third. And even if he doesn't win South Carolina, or even if he doesn't win Iowa, think about how the Sanders campaign could spin this. They could say, well, you know, there are a lot of white older voters who we struggle with, but look how well we did with minority voters or young voters. And that's our base. Kara, this has been really fun. Uh, we'll, we'll wrap it here, but more to come uh, for sure over the next few months. Stay, uh, stay well and be well. I'm so grateful. Oh, absolutely. Uh, thank you. And stay well on the, uh, on the road, on the trail there. Thank you, Anthony. Same to you. That will wrap this episode. Let me thank everyone at CBS News Radio, as always, for making this possible. Let me thank my producer, Alan Pang, along with Maeve Burke, Rachel Armani, Jake Rosen, and most of all, you for listening. Remember to give us a rating, subscribe if you like what you've heard. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, you can at us on Twitter. That's at WDYGTN, stands for Where'd You Get This Number. Send us your polling questions we can tackle in future episodes. In the meantime, we'll talk next week.